Hello, my babies, and welcome to Poker in the Ears. I am Uncle Daddy Joe Stapleton. He is my work wife, James Hardigan. Happy anniversary, Joseph. That's right. It is our anniversary. It's our 200th episode. You can see us. It's Poker in the Ears and Poker in the Eyes. Wow, that sounds terrible. Yes, our first ever video edition, and you can see that we are still trapped inside the PokerStars arena. Joe, I fear they're never going to let us out. I actually think that this thing is starting to meld itself to my skull. Coming up on this week's show, let's not bury the lead. It is a star-studded show, and also Spraggy's on. Oh! That's right. Spraggy and Jen Shahadi, they're here to talk poker and pop culture with us. Maria Ho is here to commentate and testify over the ultimate heads-up battle between myself and Celebrity Poker Showdown co-creator Josh Molina making a return appearance on the show. You may remember that I've been whining about Josh uh, holding over me, playing heads-up for months now. We're going to settle it today once and for all. Yeah, we've got a very different edition of Superfan vs. Stapes. It involves a flipping game. I'm not quite sure if it's going to work for listeners to the audio version. Poker on the radio, a bit of a weird thing. Uh, but because it is a flipping game, it's going to last for seven minutes because the seven, it is always coming. And if you hate it and it's boring, it's only coming seven minutes. You can get through it. Uh Losing to Josh for months and months has been worth it, by the way, because he has hooked us up today with our biggest get ever, writer and director of Molly's Game and a whole lot of other things that make me cry. Aaron Sorkin is here with us today. This is incredible. And no disrespect to everyone else who's appeared on the previous 199 episodes of this podcast, but this is the most excited I have ever been. And I think that this probably will be, I'm jinxing it now, aren't I? Uh, the best interview we've ever had on this show. You're jinxing it, and I'm, I'm ruining it right now because in addition to Aaron Sorkin, we also got 15-time oh, yes. World Series of Poker bracelet winner, the poker brat, Phil Helmuth Jr., also on the show today. Yes. The most incredible thing, though, and the most unbelievable thing is that we have somehow made it to episode 200, yeah. and we can't start this episode without looking back at the previous 199, Joe, the previous five and a half years of this podcast. I know your memory's not what it used to be, if it ever was anything, but do you <laughs> remember much of those 199 shows? Do you have any personal highlights from the archives? I remember a lot of stories about me lighting money on fire. Mostly involving Muse concerts. Yes, absolutely. Those were fun. Would like to for that to be a thing again one day. In fact, I've got a great story about Thanksgiving. I'm going to save for next week because uh, oh. we got too much to get to, but I lit a ton of money on fire. I, I like the tease there, though, because I do think that with this lineup, there's the prospect that we introduce a new generation of listeners to this show. So you've got to throw a little bit of bait into the water, right, to keep them coming back? And this bait is all about turkey and stuffing. Um, highlights for me, probably the biggest... Uh, that I have recent memories talking to Michael Ian Black. Uh, just been a huge fan of that guy for years. To find out he likes poker, he likes some of the work we do. Uh, I was incredibly stressed out during that interview, though, because he had a bad internet connection and I couldn't actually hear a lot, oh. a lot of what he was saying. So I was like, my hair was falling out. I don't know if that was a highlight, um, but it's memorable. Yeah, I don't remember his internet connection being bad. I do remember Sean Deeb when he joined us from Mexico during WCOOP, like hearing every third word. And I remember Paul Gilo Wren, our audio mixer, having an 
absolute nightmare trying to stitch that show together. Um, I think if I look back, and I don't know, it might be rose-tinted spectacles. It might be the fact that I just miss the EPT and live events in general. But I'm now starting to miss when we did the show on location, when we did previous video versions of the podcast. And at the time, it was a nightmare, right? Because it's just another thing, a logistical challenge when yeah. you're already working very was, long days. I was up super late at night working on those. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get up super early the next morning to actually record it. But we had a lot of fun and some of our best segments, some of our best ideas yeah. happened on those shows. Uh, like when you decided that that awful picture that was taking me of the charity event, right, where I'm eating behind the, the glamorous woman and sort of somehow putting me into moments of history. <laughs> That's the one. Uh, and also when we had the Waxwork Museum in Prague and you unearthed some of the worst waxworks in, in history. Um, but also all of the super fans we've had on the show as well, uh, no matter what their subject was, even the guy who picked yeah. Battlefield Earth, I will never forgive you, that but was it great. was still in retrospect awesome. And I have to give a shout out here to Graphical Hue a member of our production team who bullied us and begged us to coming on the show as a super fan. And Hugh, charming guy, lovely guy, does great work in the graphics department. Um, he is a Tom Hanks super fan. When we had our production meeting for EPT Online just a few weeks ago, I don't know if you noticed, Joe, if you look at Hugh's little Zoom window, he's got his Bubba Gump shrimp yes. company hat on all the time. But Hugh somehow lost that super fan quiz because when asked, did Tom Hanks have a beard in the movie Castaway? He said, no, you don't even need to be a Tom Hanks fan to know the answer to that question. He's marooned on a desert island. Of course, he's going to have a beard. Look at the poster. He's got a beard. It's probably the most memorable thing about Castaway. But you know what I say, James? If you don't like Hugh, I don't like you. Fair point. So he gets away whatever he wants, as far as I'm concerned. Um, James, I know I already mentioned crying once in the show. I just, before we um, get to bring uh, Jen and Spraggy on, I did have some time to play video games last weekend, and I played uh, Spider Man Miles Morales all the way through, 100% completion. Um, it is the most inclusive video game of all time a latino spider-man fighting crime in a black and latino neighborhood there's lesbians there's deaf people the whole thing the whole inclusion of it all by the end i was sobbing my my, my best friend and my girlfriend were watching me complete the game and then laughing at me for crying that harlem finally has a spider-man i'm sorry i'm so woke joe i was going to suggest that we could bring back everyone's favorite game did Stapes cry in it. But the problem is you can't because there's never a no. The answer is always yes. Um, there is more poker and pop culture to discuss. But as this is a very special edition of the show, we are not going to do it alone. Yes, we're whipping out the quad box early doors as we welcome both Spraggy and Jen Shahadi to the show. And Jen, it has been forever since we spoke, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Good to see you guys. No, it's lovely to see you. Um, of course, you have PokerStars in your part of the world, right? PokerStars PA is a thing. Oh, I am so lucky for that. Exactly. It's been about a year. And yeah, we can play um, from our home, which especially this year has been such a godsend. Yeah. Finally, there's a reason to be happy about living in Pennsylvania. 
Of hey, course. don't knock Philadelphia. <laughs> we of made course. good things happen. Yeah, you did. I, 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 I take it all back. <laughs> Spraggy, for you, it's uh, the traditional old poker stars. And we spoke to you a couple of days ago, in fact, because you were part of our Sunday Million stream. And I just want to quickly touch on the streams we've done for the last couple of weeks, covering day two of the Sunday Million, because I didn't know what to expect going in. Joe, it's been extraordinarily good fun. Oh, it's been hilarious. You know, um, <laughs> commentating poker is work, but it's actually been pretty fun doing the last two Sunday Millions. The first one, of course, being uh, the two players who made a deal heads up, left zero money on the table, and then played it out for an hour. Oh, that, that, that's a slight exaggeration. It was more like 15 minutes, but it felt like an hour. I've never seen that before. I've never seen two players literally chop 100% of the prize pool. And I guess... Winning the Sunday Million, getting that number one spot still means a lot to people. Pride. I'd like to say it was probably it was for the title, but I don't think it was. I think they were just confused. <laughs> uh, well, Spraggy, what we saw on the Monday just gone was in a way even weirder than that because they didn't do a deal. There was a difference of about 30K in prize money and they just decided to just get it in pre for 40 bigs with random holdings. Yeah, this week was the polar opposite. There, there was no deal, but they played as if there had been one. Um, the final hand was, I think we saw about seven or eight hands, uh, mostly all in pre-flop for 50 big blinds. And then the final hand was second pair shoved eight times the size of the pot, 10 high call, didn't get there. But um, as you say, James, it's been remarkably good fun watching people play poker who uh, we can't predict what they're going to do at any point in any hand. Yeah. Um, now, Joe and I are taking a week off, but I understand they're getting the band back together that it's the Spraggy Finton reunion show next week. Uh, so I'm led to believe, yes, Finton and I will be um, will be taking over in your absence uh, on Monday for a Sunday Million final table. The band are back together. We have on numerous occasions said it's the, the last time uh, that we <laughs> will ever be working together. But unfortunately, as fate would have it, uh, Monday we go again. Oh, I mean, just... one of you could final table it and really fuck the other one over, right? <laughs> I would say, Joe, that, that that's my plan to avoid working with Finton, but unfortunately you've seen me play poker, so it's, it's yeah, a very hard sell. Like your yeah. Um, now, one of the reasons why we wanted you guys here is to talk about TV shows and movies. This is poker and pop culture. But Spraggy, after you revealed that despite being a Star Wars nerd, you've not seen a single episode of The Mandalorian, and after you dismissed Patriot... I did consider cancelling your appearance on this podcast. So at the very least, we're going to ignore you for about five minutes because we want to talk to Jen about The Queen's Gambit. And I'm sorry, Jen, because you're probably bored talking about this TV show. I know that everyone has wanted to get your opinion on it. I know you've just written a piece for the Pokestars blog about it, but I thought this show was so fucking good that we just need to spend as much time as possible talking about it. Absolutely. And I'm actually not bored because there's so many different angles to explore it from, you know, I mean, I guess I've been talking a lot about how it can encourage more girls and women in chess. So that angle has been really highly explored, but just the art of it, I feel like there's so much to talk about. I mean, seven episodes. Yeah. And so many parallels with poker, I guess, because what we were seeing here with the whole live chess circuit, you know, going away and studying your game, reviewing moves that you've made, the kind of camaraderies and friendships, those live tournaments, it could easily have been poker. Exactly. And that was a side of chess I felt that it hadn't really been explored much on screen. I feel that most chess movies and spots on TV are about the there kids. There are chess movies? 
Um, oh yeah, there's been more, but they're almost always about kids and like, you know, the scholastic, the, the kid who's a genius. And we're, we did have that in the Queen's Gambit, but that was just one episode. And then it was a very adult show. I mean, I teach classes to girls and, you know, most of them, the parents won't let them watch the series. Um, there's, there's one who said that they're, the parents like call her in um, whenever there's a chess scene. And they're like, come watch the chess part. <laughs> I mean, I, I saw the name Gary Kasparov in the end credits. So I'm going to assume, because I'm afraid my knowledge of chess is extremely limited, other than knowing which way the pieces move. But I'm going to assume that technically this was pretty spot on. Absolutely, yes. And um, Gary actually was kind enough to come to my girls' chess club to talk about his work on the series and how he devised the game. And I mean, I obviously Gary is um, a genius. He is um, the greatest of all time. But I did not realize how creative his brain was. I mean, obviously, chess takes creativity. and He's written a lot of books. But he took this task on like it was like winning a world championship. He like, you know, read the book and looked for all the details and then tried to figure out how that could translate on screen. So that that uh, pivotal game that Beth plays against Enboss Borgov was devised in a very particular way. And, and Bruce Pandolfini was also a big played a big part in the consulting. He's a famous chess coach in right. America. Um, but yeah, I thought that he did a great job. And I think the point is also that when you have Gary Kasparov on your team, like the director is going to listen to him. So yeah, yeah, that, that so was really huge. So whenever I watch a poker movie, right, there's always like a couple of moments where I'm like, like ah, that's ugh, that's clearly written by somebody or acted by somebody that doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. How many of those moments were there in the Queen's Gambit for you? Not a whole lot, to be honest. I mean, again, because of their their technical wizardry, but also the ones that were there, I felt were very justified that clearly this is a series meant for a wide audience. So. Right. I, I don't expect them to get the the details of the eleven fish right, and the fact that the Queen's Gambit was described as only one pawn pushing forward when it really should be two. Oh, what an outrage! I mean, like, yeah, some people were upset about that, but I, I, you know, I love I love the depiction on screen. Actually, somebody asked me a really good question. Um, I can't remember what what interview it was, but somebody asked if we if they were going to make a poker series like this, who would be the equivalent of Gary Kasparov in terms of being like the perfect consultant. Yeah. What do you guys think? Well, Joe Stapleton has a newfound career as a poker consultant in the Hollywood industries. So uh, I'm, I'm going to put, 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 put the bearded wonder himself forward. I don't think I'm the most qualified, but I am the most available. So that kind of <laughs> cancels things out. Um, first of all, I'm not surprised this show is so good. Well, you said it appeals to a wide audience right here. This guy, um, as wide as it gets. First and foremost. Secondly, Scott Frank. I've loved everything oh. this guy's ever done. Get Shorty's one of my favorite movies of all time. Out of Sight is maybe my favorite movie of all time. And Godless. I don't know if you guys watch Godless, the limited series they did, uh, the Western, a couple years ago. I think is one of the best things that Netflix has ever done. So when I saw his name in the end credits, I was like, of course, this is fucking brilliant. Love that guy. Um, yeah. Spikey, did you get a chance to see it? Yeah, it was all right. Um, <laughs> Classic, classic Spraggy. Put <laughs> oh, your thread on it. <laughs> uh, no, I, do you know what? And I, 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 um, 
I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it, and I thought it was it was really um, it, stylistically. It's beautiful. Like every scene, it, it looks really, really good, and um, it was an enjoyable watch. I, I did enjoy it. I will say though, and I, I I'm being a little bit cynical here, a little bit miserable. But yeah. Nothing really happened that I didn't. She's just good at chess, and then <laughs> she wins at chess. There were sure there were sort of pitfalls along the way. Obviously, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, and there were hurdles sure. to overcome. In, in, you just in a not like that head spraggy because I was mesmerized by uh, Anna Taylor Joy from start to finish. But she just beats people at chess. That's it. <laughs> God damn it! But when you didn't. watch John Wick, do you go? He just shoots people. But spraggy, True. she didn't beat. She didn't beat as as Jen described him, the end boss Borgov. And the question is. Can she win without her trusted tranquilizers? Can she win if she stays off the booze? And that's 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 the kind of narrative you're following. But in all seriousness, that is the story you're following. Is is she going to self-destruct? Because her addictive personality is clearly the thing that threatens her brilliance. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And uh, and f- uh, to g- to give credit to where it's due, I did spend four hours playing chess last night. So ah, um, clearly, clearly, the, its permeation into the mainstream has had some sort of effect. And um, you know, it, it was enjoyable. I enjoyed it. Um, I, I did think about it as well from like a, a poker perspective. Um, it's kind of difficult to tell that story in poker, isn't it? Or or is it not? Because the, the main stumbling block that I was thinking um, in chess, the story stands up here because one person's brilliance, like she's a brilliant player and she goes from this, you know, um, hidden talent to, you know, the heights that she reaches by the end of the series. But is it difficult to tell that story in poker where any win you have in poker has to rely on a certain degree of luck. Is it tougher to tell that story where you have the crowning moment where someone goes on to win the World Series of Poker main event and still uh, remaining true to like a poker audience who would kind of roll their eyes at like, oh, of course the the talented youngster goes on and wins the big prize at the end. Um, yeah. So I, guess, I, I don't know how there's parallels, you know, how you would do that with poker, but no. it, it, was, it was an enjoyable, it was an enjoyable. Uh, I guess you've got a point, but Jen, I think it'd be awesome because I've seen how much enthusiasm there suddenly is around the game of chess and all these people discovering it for the first time. It'd be so awesome if we could have the equivalent in poker, right? I think so. And the th- one of the reasons I believe the Queen's Gambit was so popular as it was the number one Netflix show ever. And in so many different countries is that, there wasn't a lot of dialogue, so you could really enjoy it, you know, you know, no matter what language you spoke, right? Like, obviously, you could use subtitles if you don't understand English, but you wouldn't even really need to need them that much because so much of it was like the acting and the sound and the chess moves, which yeah. you got a vibe for even if you didn't play chess. That was what I mean, other people yeah. told me as well. A gorgeous redheaded genius that gets inebriated enough to make terrible life decisions. I was all in from from the get-go. I love the fact that Joe's taken away something completely different from this show. I have to ask, Jen, before we move on from the Queen's Gambit, the piece you've written for the Pokestars blog, what angle have you taken on that? Because as you said yourself, there are so many angles you can come at the show from. Exactly. And they've all been written about. I mean, there's been hundreds, thousands of articles about this. But what I found quite interesting, because so many poker players were intrigued by this series and took up chess, was that there actually was poker in the book that Walter Tevis wrote that this was adapted from. And it was actually a pretty important scene. Um, Benny, as I'm sure you're not surprised because he liked the gambling, the speed chess, um, was also a poker player. And that was how he made most of his money. So chess was like what he did 
um, his passion, but he paid his rent by playing with the guys at a poker club. And the first time he sleeps with Beth, which in the book and in the series was this like great buildup, right? Um, as soon as that happens, he immediately has to go to the poker game. So Beth is in the book. It didn't make it into the series, but in the book, Beth is obviously really annoyed. She, she ends up going to the poker club and she realizes that this would be a game that she would be good at, but she doesn't have that same like immediate um, love affair with it that she has with chess. And she's mostly just enveloped in anger at Benny for just like not, you know, I don't know, not leaving immediately to go run off and play poker. And it's interesting because I noticed on IMDb that there was a poker player that was uncredited in Ooh. the series. So potentially there's some version of this scene out there. Wow. Deleted scenes. Maybe that'll be on the 4K Blu-ray special edition. Um, I was going to ask what else everyone's been watching. For me, it's a very simple answer. That's what I've been watching over the last week. I know it's a little bit late to the party, but only finished it this weekend. Spraggy, have you had time to consume any TV or movies? We mentioned Finton earlier on. I noticed he's finally working his way through what he considers to be classic movies, i.e. films that are like 10 years old. Yeah, Finton is watching films, which is nice. I think he watched uh, Gladiator, um, Goodfellas, which I said to watch Goodfellas. You kind of have to watch Goodfellas. And then he watched, I think, uh, The Untouchables. Gladiator, which- it's, just a, it's just a guy killing people. Goodfellas, it's just a bunch of gangsters doing gangster stuff. Um, as for me, uh, I've been watching The Crown, which is just... Oh, yeah. uh, you talk about nothing happening. Um, That's the show about dentistry, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, I mean, nothing happens in that either, really. I was pretty turned off by the crane. I watched the, I watched season one. God. You're the fucking worst, man. <laughs> Unbelievable. I watched season one. I couldn't really get into it. Again, I know how it ends. Um, or I know how a lot of it ends. Um, I, I haven't had really much time to be watching anything else. I, I know how it ends. She's still the queen. Yeah, she's still the queen. Yeah. So when all these things, it's like, all oh, this could uh, jeopardize her, you know, uh, monarchy. I'm like, well, it'd be all right, oh. wouldn't it? Because um, I'm here six years later. Jen, please tell me you've just been watching loads of schlocky nonsense and absolutely loving it. Yeah. Well, I think the most recent thing I watched was an episode of The Bachelorette. <laughs> This is more like it. I mean, that's to be fair. That's usually while I'm like you know answering emails, and then I've got Bachelorette on the other screen. But there's a there's one guy in it this year, this uh, season, who's amazing. He's actually a chess player too. So chess really is everywhere. Wow! What an incredible segue talking about the Bachelorette. Indeed, because of course the other reason why we wanted you here, Spraggy, is we did do a little news alert a couple of weeks ago when your engagement was announced on social media. You are soon going to be. Mr. Benjamin Sprack doesn't work, but you get my point. Um, Marley Cordero is now your fiance, and you have turned in to the most pathetic human being <laughs> known to man. The cynical exterior has been stripped away, and the fuzzy, soft, cuddly Spraggy has come to the fore. Yeah, apparently, and and Joe Stapleton even said that he was going to stop being my friend because I've because I've become this person. But you know, that's who I was all along, and. As every 16-year-old girl says on Facebook, if you can't handle me at my uh, worst, you don't deserve... No, you, either way, Joe... Um, it, it when are we going to see fair. you at your best? That's what I'm wondering. I'm still waiting for that <laughs> moment Any day arrive. now. Any day now. Um, but obviously, on a serious note, congratulations. And what happens next? What are the plans? I mean, do you wait till the world gets back to some sense of normality? 
Um, we're not entirely sure. It's um, obviously is a bit of a process because Marley being based in the US and me being based here. So we have to start looking at. I hope uh, you're not planning on coming to the US because England is not sending us their best people. <laughs> um, we actually might because it might end up that we get married in Vegas. Um, so if we need to pay someone $10, $20 to witness the wedding, you know, to make it official or whatever, presumably you'd be down to travel. Jeff. I think we've established I'm available. Excellent. <laughs> um, but no, I don't know what the plans are. Uh, we will be getting married probably sooner rather than later. Um, Joe Stapleton invited or otherwise. Uh, yeah. Maybe US, maybe UK. It's all up in the air at the moment. I love the I'll way that you just had a hard segue from Joe telling you that he was available just to completely ignore it and move on. Um, thank you both for coming on this special edition of the podcast. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to ask you both to leave now because we've got the goat in the waiting room. Ladies and gentlemen, we are delighted to be joined on this podcast by one of the most famous poker players on the planet, if not the most famous. He is the 1989 World Series of Poker main event champion. He is the record holder for number of World Series of Poker bracelets won. He has 15 of them. And to this day... He remains one of the biggest figures and loudest voices in the game. It is the poker brat himself, Philip Helmuth Jr. Phil Helmuth Jr., thank you so much for being on the show. Finally, finally we got you on the podcast. Um, I'm not going to say you look tired because you don't, but I know you're tired. What's happening? <laughs> I mean... Okay, so I should I just tell the story, Stapes? I guess I'll just say it. So I was playing poker, 50 and 100 PLO, all of 2020. I think maybe one day I went to bed at 11 a.m., but I've been on a good schedule all of 2020. And uh, I'm playing, and I'm, I get five loser, 10, 15, 20, 30,000 loser, and I just quit. I'm down like 29,000. And then people are texting me, what's wrong with you? And I realized that I can't be the baby. I can never be the baby. So not with my friends. And I'm like, you guys teased me too hard. I'm not going to play for a week. And then I thought, this just sounds ridiculous, Phil. Get back in there. And they're like begging me to come back in, buying another 3K. I buy another 3K, another 3K. And then finally, I'm like, ah, oh, fuck it. Give me 50,000. Give me another 100,000. So now I'm buying real chips. And, uh, and I'm battling between 30 and 40,000 loser. Hours are passing. But Stapes, I mean, I'm getting like 5,500 and with aces and PLO when they only have another 5,500 behind and I'm just losing all of them and they're running it twice and I'm just annoyed. But I'm also having fun. I understand I'm having fun. I haven't played a lot of online poker. I played almost every day until August 1st and then I haven't uh, maybe five times since then. So I'm really having fun and uh, and I just, and so, you know, the next thing you know, I get it to like, uh, 10,000 loser. And then all of a sudden I'm right near even and I get bluffed a big pot um, by kind of a famous guy. I'm not going to, I guess I should keep some of the names off. I was going to say, I got so many questions already. Who can you name in this game? I mean, it's my Silicon Valley game, so that's already public, um, but but it's not, but we so have like new Chimov. players in there too. Yeah, but Chamas a regular in our game, but he hasn't been playing, uh, he hasn't been playing the last few months. But anyway, so the hand, so the hand comes up, and 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 I just get bluffed. It was a brilliant bluff, and I'm and all of a sudden I'm twenty loser again, and it's like six a.m. and I've been through this, 
if you're a professional poker player, you when you get yourself buried and you get out, you almost always should just quit because yeah. it, it tends to go fast when things start to go bad. You know, I mean, because you're not usually playing your best when you get buried anyway. And I'm like, ah, you know what? I'm just going to stay for a while. And the next thing you know, I'm up 15K and then I'm losing again. And I'm like, all right, you got to go. You got to go. And I suddenly and then boom, I catch a nice rush and I'm up 20,000, 30, 40, 50. I'm up 60,000. And I realize it's, uh, you know, 9 a.m. And I'm like, oh, my God, I have a podcast at one. <laughs> and my wife has got my wife's usually up at seven, but she got up a little bit late today. And she's like, she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, honey, does it make any sense to get three hours of sleep before this podcast? And, uh, and I hate sleeping three hours. It's just painful. And we're like, you know what? No, just power through. And so I ended up winning 57,000 the game, 1500 PLO. It was a nice night. I've been on fire in poker through all throughout COVID, uh, whether it's playing Antonio heads up, yeah. Whether it's filming that, you know, I, I've won 25 out of 26 times playing and, and in, you know, high stakes when I've, when I've, you know, when we're filming yeah. and I've just been on fire. Finally, we filmed high stakes poker. And I can say that uh, I lost a little bit on day one and I lost a little bit on day two. And I was kind of bummed out. I'm like, what is this? I've just been all, I've won 24 out of 25. And in the third session, um, I got my money back and I ended up small winner for the week. How many, uh, but I mean, those games were you, tremendous. How many of these sessions do you think you should be winning? Obviously that's a little bit of a expectation, even for being the greatest. People don't believe me. All right. For, for, I never, I didn't lose three times in a row playing poker for like eight years. Uh, well, I don't want to exaggerate six years, never lost because after the first loss, I'm already kind of mad. And after the second loss, I completely tear my game apart and I'm like, all right, what the hell is going on here? And I'm so fucking focused and I'm so miserable for a day or two that that third session. Now that changed in COVID. I mean, there's times where I lost three days in a row in COVID, but that's playing every single day. Sure. And so, but you know, so in my once a week game, you know, uh, and then occasionally I'll play three, four days in a row. Ne didn't lose three times in a row for six years. It doesn't make sense to a lot of people, um, but it's just a fact. Are you and so the only I can't explain why I can't explain why I won 23 out of 25 and the other time was a push. So I can't explain why I only lost once in 25 sessions. I will tell you this, Stapes. There were times where I would be filming it live at the bike or whatever, and I'd be down like 4K and there'd be a half an hour to go. This and is all of a sudden I'd be 45,000 winner. I'm like, I don't know how this happened, <laughs> but I did know this when I'm a little bit loser at the end of a session, I'm thinking, you know what? It's not a big deal. You're going to play tomorrow or the next day or a week from now. So just continue to play great till the end and lose the minimum. And then somehow, sometimes that losing the minimum attitude, just boom, things just go bonkers. But the thing I don't understand in all of this, Phil, is how everyone's lives have been turned upside down by 2020, right? And what's happened. But your life just seems to be the same. You're still <laughs> traveling around. You're still playing poker. You're still doing TV shows. How have you managed to kind of live in this bubble where you've escaped reality? I mean, listen, nobody wanted COVID. Nobody wanted COVID. Uh, but, but no, I mean, it's, been, it's actually been incredible. One of the companies I invested in went from 5 million valuation to 140 million valuation. Uh, I think I have five points in that one. Um, just in the last three weeks, uh, I've invested in three different companies 
Eugenies is this, they do 3D avatars and we just did one for the Biebs. Uh, and so it's a great, great looking avatar. And so, you know, it, it's just, I, I'm on 10 advisory boards now and I'm having a lot of fun. And the SPAC, I'm not even talking about the SPACs. I can talk about so much business stuff. You won't be able to follow it all. But I will say this, and, and maybe this is, yeah, I guess I'm bragging. Um, uh, I guess it's a brag. I've never made hey, a million. Look, we know we signed on for it when we had you on the show. So we, we, <laughs> okay, Stamps. We, we want to hear it. I've never made a million dollars in a week in the stock market. You know, I have millions in the market. But I mean, you know, you're, you're grinding out 15, 20% per year, which is, it, it, when you hit 15, 20%, you're like, that's, that's a, a great year, right? Yeah. And so it's just been grinding out all this money. And then because of these SPACs, I have huge concentrated bets. Three companies now that I have, uh, that I, that I win 150,000 point or 165,000 a point when they go up and then conversely when they go down. And so it just so happened that some of the companies I'm involved with, Rush Street Interactive, uh, you know, just just got hot and went up five points. And so it, it's been it's really been amazing. And I've won. I probably won. Uh, well, I know I've won at least a million playing poker this year. Um, that helped at the Antonio heads up match. <laughs> yeah, I, wonder, I, wonder <laughs> I was up like five or six or seven hundred thousand playing online. The one and, thing I want to talk uh, about in that Antonio match, though, Phil, is obviously it, a lot of people were watching it. A lot of people were enthralled. And it was always interesting to see the reactions from other members of the poker community, right? And you're no stranger to this, right? You see the criticism that gets thrown at you, the lack of respect that gets thrown in your direction. But there were two very interesting, diverse opinions here. Phil Galfon wrote a very nice piece where he went, I don't say I can understand Phil Helmer's game, but I have to respect it. And then Fedor Holtz came along and went, nah, He's just bad. And I mean, does, does that bother you that you don't have the respect of everyone who plays at the highest level in the game? I'm going to say something that might sound weird. Okay. Um, they they actually, I don't think. Fuck off, Fedor. Might sound weird. <laughs> I don't think that the, I don't think that the, uh, that the world understands Texas Hold'em fully yet. And, and there's a lot of evidence to support that, you know, thesis. And so the things that I do, that they think are wrong, eventually they're going to find out are right. Um, and I think, I think that's what's going to happen. Um, also, there's, there's this, I call it an X factor, it's reading ability. And any of these players that are coming up with theories that do not incorporate reading ability can never be world-class players. <laughs> they can be great players uh, or really good players, call them great, but world-class, if you want to be a world-class poker player, you have to be able to look across the table and say that guy has nothing or that guy has it. And if you can't do that, you can still make a lot of money. These mathematical theories are very elegant. They work really hard on them. I'm not taking away from the majority of the work that they're doing. But when you get to the upper, upper echelons of poker, there's some huge uh, you know, um, disconnect here that a lot of great players don't think I'm great at poker. Don't even think I'm good. And yet I just keep winning and winning and winning and winning and they don't understand it. So then in not understanding it, I will tell you this, if I saw somebody who was great at poker and I knew he was the best in the world or one of the best, I would study that guy. I would figure out. And I did that. I thought Jack Keller was the best limit hold'em player in the world and he hated it. I, wa I, I took a day off and I watched him play limit hold'em from the rail. And he's like, what the fuck? What is Phil Helmuth doing watching me from the rail? I wanted to see what he was doing. 
And so, you know, I, I would think that they'd want to learn, but no, they'd rather say, I don't understand it. Therefore, Helm, you sucks. That's I okay. I, I come down uh, on the Galfon side of things and always have, and just said, look, first of all, as being not really a, an amazing poker player myself, I don't feel qualified to criticize anybody really, but I will say, do I see the criticisms people make of Phil Helmuth Jr.? Yes. But you cannot argue with his results. You cannot argue that there is no better player in the world at navigating large field, live, no limit Texas Hold'em tournaments. You, I don't know how you do it. I mean, you just explained it. But what I'm saying is like, I couldn't say how it's done, but you fucking do it. And so if I was going to write something, it would be very similar to what Phil Galvan wrote. Well, thank you. And, and let, me, let me cut back to Fedor Holtz for a second. His criticism is interesting. He's like, well, I saw Phil blow a $300,000 buy-in tournament. And I said, yeah, you saw me blow three of them. And you saw me blow a, a 25 and a 52. Okay. I mean, we all have bad days. We all play badly. I mean, whenever I played with Fedor, I mean, they were wondering why I'd come in five, six hours late. I was exhausted every day when I was filming one of these where we filmed for like five, six days in a row. I think I made one final table. And I, I mean, I, I just was so tired. And I remember the last 300, uh, I was... I got close to the chip lead with about nine players left. And uh, then I just got super tired and I, I, I just blew it. I did. I blew it. And, uh, and so he's seen me blow a couple of these. And so that's not the measure of a man. You don't take a man. You don't decide someone's a great poker player because you saw him blow four or five tournaments. It's not that. You, you take a measure of a man by what he's accomplished. I wish that these people could see my whole cards because it would blow their mind to actually be on a day one and a day two and a day three and see all the crazy bluffs that I've gotten away with. And, 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 you know, and well, just pretending I'm the tightest player in history and the, my base is super, super, super tight. And when I'm playing super, super, super tight, it means that I always have it. And so if I always have it or pretend to always have it, and someone finally makes a stand, I've defined what I have and they believe it. And so it's easier to read them. When I'm out there playing super, super fast, it's harder to read people. So, I mean, that's a couple of points. So Fedor, come on, man. I mean, of course I blew a few tournaments. Yeah. You know, we'll just see in 10 years from now, we'll see if I'm, you know. And then the, other, the last thing is this too. I mean, if you look at who's had the most final tables in the last five years of the World Series of Poker, it, it might may well be me and no limit holdems. Um, you know, they told me, oh, you can't play the $5,000 buy in, you know, uh, turbos. And then I final tabled it, won it, and then finished sixth in it in like four years. And I'm like, I just can't believe it. So it's, it's, it's a little frustrating, but I also say that I use that as motivation. When Fedor Holtz, who I've never said anything negative about, I mean, he does, he, he has played monster pots with way the worst hand. I mean, he's gotten away with murder at times. I will say that we've seen it. He gets all, he was just moving with King eight of hearts for like 30 big blinds and gets called with jacks and he keeps hitting a King. I mean, I've read those write-ups, but even despite the fact that he's doing that, I still have a lot of respect for his game and would never say anything bad about the way he plays. I, I, I'm not a fan of the 20 and 30 big blinds with King seven suited, I guess, but, 
Well, if there's one thing everyone can agree on, Phil, it's you are one of the most famous poker players on the planet and have been for several decades now. And one of the things I find interesting is that many people in the UK on this side of the Atlantic knew you before the American audience because TV poker started here and you were one of the first Americans to come over and take part in late night poker in the late 90s, early 2000s. What are your recollections of that? Yeah, I remember it was, I think I played late night poker three. And uh, what I remember is I was living in this house and I remember uh, saying, oh, my God, all the Brits were telling me um, that. And, you know, everybody in the UK was telling me there's this terrific show that shows whole card cameras and it's getting amazing ratings and it's revolutionized the way we view Hold'em. And I'm like, I have to get there to see the technology. Maybe I want to buy the technology or own the technology or be a part of the technology. I wasn't as steady then as I am now, you know, um, as a poker player, you know, uh, I've never had a losing month in my life, but I still wasn't quite as steady. I didn't have millions of dollars in the bank. I had, you know, houses and stuff like that, but I went over there for that primarily. And, you know, when I arrived, I remember, um, I think it was the first one. Yeah. I read the Hannibal Lecter book, uh, cause I couldn't sleep on the plane. And then when I landed in London and took, uh, I guess a train over, I was still reading it. And I just remember when I arrived at the hotel, they said, you film in like three hours. And I was like, all right, whatever. <laughs> and so I slept for two hours and, uh, and I got up and I went for a really hard workout. And I've noticed when I have a really hard workout, my mind is always clear for about four or five hours um, you know, sometimes only three hours. And then we went to the studio and we sat around for two hours and I'm like, damn it. <laughs> you know, I'm going to, my, my window of my workout, keeping me fresh is going to, is going to mess me up here. And I entered the first heat and I won it. And then they said, Hey, uh, and I had backup plans. I was going to go visit my sister in Italy, um, and just hang out there for a week. And just in case I didn't win. And then they said, Hey, you're in the finals. And then I entered the, in the finals. I think that I had uh, the chip lead the whole way. And I think that I got the money in stunningly good in the last few hands. And all of a sudden I'd won late night poker, which was a pretty cool title to have because, you know, um, and I think that was also then great for the ratings. Yeah. And we were treated to that personality to the guy who just does not like to lose, who we would then see over the next few years at the World Series of Poker. So here's here's my question, Phil. Do you ever regret that that is the identity that you created for yourself, that that's the role that you had, the so-called poker brat, the guy who basically would just explode in certain situations? Do you ever think, you know, why couldn't, why can't I, why couldn't I be the guy with the fruit on the table? <laughs> okay, a couple of things about that. First of all, as I played poker all night in my online game, a tremendous amount of like when they put bad beats on me, I'm going off in the chat. I'm leaving some vi- some messages. People love that because they love the intensity because people think like that, James and, and Stapes. When you take a bad, bad beat, everybody's gutted and pissed off. Now, some people just smile and shake your hands. So when I act out you know, what they'd like to act out when they were five years old, everybody can relate to that. And they're like, well, he's honest, he's authentic, you know, (laughs) he's acting like I would like to act sometimes. And that's number one. Number two, 
they then turned me into the bad boy of poker. And I said, that's great. I'll be the bad boy of poker for three, four years. Then people are going to realize that I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not a drug guy, but I, I, I never cheated on my wife. Uh, I have, you know, perfect ethics and morals and they're all, they're going to figure that out. And so I thought, all right, I'll be the poker brat, but maybe by 2007, the world will know that I'm actually the good guy of poker. Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I care, but I will say this, um, the public's confused. And so, I mean, I had every big poker player in the world tap me on the shoulder and say, Phil, I'm annoyed that that People aren't asking me about me. They're asking me about you. And so, and, and, but I had this whole legion of top pros that defended me. And they said, so actually, Phil's a great guy. I get asked about you more than anyone else in all of my travels, all the people I meet. Oh, you work in poker. I get your, the, the survey says family feud. Number one answer. Who do I get asked about you? And also um, connected to that, I defend you because people are always like, Oh, that guy's such a jerk. And I'm like, he's really not. Now, in that moment, he might have been. And Phil almost always comes back and apologizes uh, when he has those moments. But off the table, I've never seen him raise his voice. I've never seen him lose his temper. I've never seen him be anything than a, a complete gentleman and a generous guy at that. And so I guess what James is getting to is if you had it to do all over again, would you choose that same public persona? Thanks for steering me back on course, uh, Stapes. <laughs> James, I didn't mean to completely ignore your question. No, but I'd do so. it all over again. I, I don't know if I'd change much, you know? I mean, yeah. uh, the fact is that I can't control myself uh, at the tables. That's not made up. That's not for television. I hate losing more than anybody else on the planet. And, you know, you have to look deep inside. And, you know, when I look, when I, you know, when I did my, when I wrote my book, auto, my autobiography, Poker Brat, I talk about, how hard it was for me, you know, to be, to have bad grades, to have a father with, yes, sell, 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 to have bad (laughs) grades, to not be a great athlete, to have my father, um, you know, down on me, down on me because, you know, uh, he has a PhD, a JD and an MBA, and I'm the oldest of five and a guy. So take all that traditional pressure that you would have. Okay. And that was on me and I didn't perform well. So my self-esteem was low. And then all of a sudden I became, you know, one of the, maybe the best poker player in the world. By the time I was 24, I'd already, I already won the main event and I won a bunch of other tournaments, 24, 25, 26, you know, and so maybe the best player in the world. And that was hard to reconcile. And so, you know, part of my hatred of losing is and maybe it sounds stupid to you guys. No, uh, but it doesn't. But sometimes I guess- when I lose it, I'm going to share something with you. Sometimes when I lose a pot, it makes me feel inferior or like I'm not great or, you know, and, and, it, and that stems back to, you know, Stapes. I, the one thing I could do is I could beat all my brothers and sisters at every game we played checkers chess now i was older so i mean when you're a 12 year old playing with you know an 11 year old and a 10 year old and a seven year old and a six year old you're going to win a lot and when they would actually beat me at a game i would go crazy like say we're playing uh you know because i knew that i made every move perfectly right and i would go crazy because i didn't have anything what did i have left in my life 
I was already the bottom of the pack as far as grades. I was the bottom of the pack as far as athletics and musical ability and, uh, and presumably intelligence. We, we didn't know how to measure intelligence well back then. Sure. And so when I lost, I went crazy and that translated to poker. It's a flaw in deep inside of me that I just, it's hard for me to lose. And then yeah. sometimes I have great control and I other times I so go much. off. Yeah, but I, I guess so much. from the outside looking in, there's another human being on the receiving end of the Helmuthian rant. And here's a question from one of our listeners, Michael Nadasdi. Uh, Phil, do you regret any of your rants at other players? Is there one that sticks out where you berated someone for being terrible and on reflection realized you'd been unfair? Yeah, I mean, I think some of my rants are misunderstood. So let me, let me answer that specifically, uh, James, since I dusted over your last question here. <laughs> I think I gave you a pretty good answer for that one, but I would say that there are a couple of times I regret it in the moment. So the minute that I go off yeah, and then I leave, I'm like, God damn, you were an asshole. What's wrong with you? I'm actually kind of whipping myself a little bit. What's wrong with you that you had to act that way, you know? Um, and then, but it's been so ingrained into me. The producers love it. The players love it. And when, now when I go off somebody at the table, they get excited and they say, I'm in the club. And then someone else says, you're in the club. Phil berated you. And they text all their friends, Helmuth berated me. So that's just the weirdest. So it's like I'm almost encouraged to not rein it in very much. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, I, I'm not proud of that behavior when my wife, <laughs> my wife's in the room right now <laughs> when we're watching ESPN. She's just, first of all, she's only seen like 20% of the stuff I'm on. Um, I don't even I think, do you know that. I'm a New York Times bestselling author, honey? <laughs> Did you know that? Now she's laughing at me. But I mean, we watch, we watch this, we watch me going crazy on television. She's like, who is that guy? <laughs> you know? And, and my friends are like, that don't play poker with me. are like, who is that guy? And so, you know, it, it's, it's like, a, it's like a persona and, and I, and I try to get out of it, James, but it's, it's not easy. So do I regret some of the rants? Absolutely. Do I re regret one in specific? No, not really. Okay. I All would right. regret it if I didn't go and shake the person's hand afterwards. You know, that, that's the one thing I do. And I've had a thousand rants and I've shaken a thousand hands. I think one time in 2000 times, someone didn't want to shake my hand. And I tried and I tried to be charming and I tried this. I think that Dan Smith didn't like it when I acted that way towards him. And I said, all right, uh, I owe you a bottle of Dom Perignon. And I bought him a bottle of Dom and he tweeted out pictures. Phil owes me, you know, and I told him anytime I go off on you, I'm going to just buy you a bottle of Dom because some people don't like it. And if you say in public, you know, they just don't like it. And so, and that's okay because who needs some, you know, egomaniac screaming at you, you know I mean? Like, <laughs> It actually really bothers me when I see people try to get Phil to do it. I, like, I'm like, he's, he's still a person. Like, you don't have dance, to. Dance, monkey, dance. Yeah, well, they're like trying to annoy him. They, I've seen people act like a dick to Phil just so they can have that story to tell. Phil went off on me, and that bothers me. I don't know. It feels like picking on Phil a little bit. It feels like, I don't know. Phil. I do. I do think I'm, I do think I'm the biggest target, Joe. I mean, my wife will tell you uh, that I made myself a target. And yeah. so I tend to get made fun of more than most and uh, because I can handle it. But, you know, sometimes I don't like it. 
Um, I don't like it. Um, but Joe, if you're sitting at the table or James, if you're at the table with me at a world series tournament, everybody's civil and having fun and they're all happy. I'm there. And so, you know, what, what they don't talk about is that 98% of the time I'm at the table laughing and joking with people, asking them the, where they're from, or, you know, if it's late in the day and I don't have any energy left, I'm just listening to my music. And they don't talk about the jovial, fun, you know, experience that I think it's, I think it's fun to be at my table. And I actually think that, uh, that people are bummed out if I don't go off once. And there's a lot of days I don't. Phil, I got to tell you, I'm bummed out that I, I I miss your energy. I miss having you around. I miss working with you. Hopefully, one day you'll unblock me on Twitter. But before we let you out of here, <laughs> are you blocked on Twitter? Yes. He's no idea why. It Please just tell me you have a PR team that blocked me. You, well, you might have said something. You might have said something kind of mean, and I just was in a bad mood. I just tend to block quickly. I block, block, block. There's whatever only like it is, two. whatever it is, if you can remember, I deeply apologize because I never want to hurt anybody's feelings, especially yours. Uh, I mean, I'm a big target, and yeah. people more say more stuff about me than absolutely, than which is why anybody I, in I felt I when I, I didn't even notice for a long time. I felt terrible. I was like, oh god, whatever it was, shit. I'm sure, like, you know, but it's not my nature to want to upset. Joe, me. I mean, obviously, Phil's just talked about the fact that everyone wants to be like on the receiving end of a Helmuthian rant. Maybe this is the kind of virtual equivalent in the COVID <laughs> world. Being blocked by Helmuth, I got a block. Is all you can live with now. That's way That's down it. here, I wanted to be screamed at. Uh, Phil, it's a rite of passage on this show. Before we let you go, a, a quick game. You know I love to play my dumb games with my guests. Phil Helmuth, you would agree you are one of the world's foremost experts on, on bracelets, right? Yeah, for sure. Great. Then uh, you're going to be an expert on this quiz about bracelets. I'm calling the game the basic bracelet facelift. And I know that doesn't make any sense, but it, there aren't a lot of r- words that rhyme with bracelet. Um, Spoiler alert, so- Joe, none of your games make sense. Correct. So it's just a trivia <laughs> quiz about bracelets since you're an expert. Question number one. These bracelets had the number one song of 1987 called Walk Like an Egyptian. Was it the circlets, the armbands, the wristlets, or the bangles? The bangles. Bangles Walk is correct. Walk like an Egyptian. There it da, is. Da, da, da. Careful, we don't own the rights. <laughs> Question number yeah, two. Yeah, you own the rights for like five words. I cut it. I'm pretty good at this. Okay. All right. We'll do. We'll, we'll hope. We'll just. We'll just have Phil block them if they come to us. Okay. Question number two. <laughs> Everyone knows Phil Hammond can dodge bullets, baby. But whose bracelets were magically made to be indestructible, specifically to deflect bullets in Man's World? Was ah. it Captain Marvel's bracelets, Jessica Rabbit's bracelets, Wonder Woman's bracelets? Or Stormy Daniels bracelets. I'm going with Wonder Woman on that one. Phil, you're two Wonder and Woman is correct. You are two for two. Question three. Everyone knows Phil Helmuth Jr. has 15 bracelets, but people around the world have 80 million of these Nike bracelets. Are they King James bracelets, Livestrong bracelets, Air Jordan bracelets, or Slap bracelets? I have to go with Livestrong because I know that I know I because I remember when when Lance Armstrong did those and I thought it was a great move for charity. Phil, you are three for three. Here's question four: What is a real nickname for bracelets and not something I just made up? Is it wrist candy, 
hand collars, arm earrings, or Edward Helmuth hands? Wrist candy, baby. Wrist candy is correct. Four for four, question five. The bracelets of redemption are an item in which popular video game? Is it League of Edgelords, Diablo Cody, Call of Duty Fraggle Rock, or World of Warcraft? I gotta go with World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft is correct, five for five. By the way, I need to play Call of Duty Fraggle Rock. Someone <laughs> please make that game a reality. <laughs> Fraggle Rock, I love it. <laughs> Two questions left, question number six. All right. In the mid-2000s raver culture, ravers would often trade bracelets while wait, reciting... Wait, wait, mid-2000s raver culture. Okay. Yes. Ravers would often trade bracelets while reciting their mantra, PLUR, which stands for peace, love, unity, and raves, respect, revolution, or Reginald Vell Johnson. Nice diehard reference. Respect is respect. correct, and the diehard reference. One question left. You're almost perfect, Phil. Here we go. Is he going to run the board, ladies and gentlemen? The tension's bearable. If you Google... The tension's bearable. <laughs> if you Google the phrase, famous bracelets from history, the results list five bracelets. One of them is a World Series of Poker bracelet. Three of them name check their famous owners. Which of the following three historical figures are now inextricably linked to Phil Helmuth Jr. as a result of this Google list? Which company does Phil Helmuth hold according to Google? Is okay. it Gloria Swanson, John Crawford, and Odin, God of Wisdom? Wow. Is it Wonder Woman, Kevin Hart, and Newman from Seinfeld? Is it Lance Armstrong, Urkel and Philip Seymour Hoffman? Or is it Queen Victoria I, President Calvin Coolidge, and Beethoven's the second? The movie. Wow. Wow, I'm almost perfect here. I, I'm just cut, caught between third and fourth answer. Give me the third one again. Third one is Lance Armstrong, Urkel, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. The fourth one and is the Queen last Victoria one? the first, President Calvin Coolidge, and Beethoven second. What do you mean Beethoven the second? That's a person. Or... Beethoven second the movie. I'm going. I'm going with that one. I'm going with the last one. Yep. He's going with Queen Victoria the first. Phil Helmuth won 23 out of his last 25 sessions. He got six out of seven right in this quiz. We were looking for Gloria Swanson, Joan Crawford, and Odin, God of Wisdom. Still pretty cool company to keep. Phil Helmuth, Phil, thanks so much for doing the show. I love you. I miss you. I hope we get to see each other again soon. I miss your energy, my man, Joe Stapes. Thanks, James. Appreciate it, you Thank guys. Thank you, Phil. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm going to bed. Have a good one. <laughs> GGGN. All nighter. Oh, Joe, that went exactly, exactly how I thought it would go. Yeah, except for the fact I can't help but notice I'm still blocked on Twitter. <laughs> I love the fact that we didn't actually need to really do anything, right? You could just introduce him and say, Phil, poker, go. And you'd get 30 minutes of content. Much of the same stuff. Just pull that string and let him go. That's why he's the greatest of all time.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have reached that moment. Our next guest is an award-winning writer, director, and producer. And just to be clear, the awards I'm talking about include one Oscar, a BAFTA, two Golden Globes, and multiple Emmys. He is the creator of Sports Night, The West Wing, and The Newsroom. He is the writer of A Few Good Men, The Social Network, and Steve Jobs. He is the director of Molly's Game and The Trial of the Chicago 7. We are thrilled to welcome Aaron Sorkin to episode 200 of Poker in the Ears. Aaron Sorkin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Great to be here. Suffice to say, there is a lot we want to talk about. Um, I think it makes sense for a poker-themed podcast to start with Molly's Game. And I guess the obvious question is, why Molly's Game for your directorial debut? Was it a poker thing? Was it the story of Molly Bloom herself? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, uh, when I wrote Molly's Game, I didn't know I'd be directing it. Um, uh, That happened after I turned the script in uh, and the studio and the producers decided I'd be the best director for it. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure they made the right choice, but um, uh, but the reason why I decided to direct it, the reason why I said yes, was that um, I really loved the story, um, and uh, and uh, I I really loved Molly, and uh, I still do, and uh, I was concerned that there were so many shiny objects in the story, the money, the bold faced names. Uh, Hollywood, that uh, the story I wanted to tell was getting lost in that. I wanted to set the story against that backdrop and not feature the shiny objects. So you thought that even as Aaron Sorkin, you wouldn't have been able to guide it the way you wanted to go? You just wanted to have full control of the whole thing? I I, I might have been. Um, uh, And I... like I said, I, I wasn't expecting uh, to direct it. I turned in the first draft uh, and then met the producers for dinner, and we had a short list of directors. We went through each one, and at the end, the producer said, but we think you should direct it. Uh, and uh, I, I thought about it for a couple of weeks, uh, and I said, yes, for one thing, it would be the fastest way to get the movie made. Uh, but like I said, I, I had more personal, more creative reasons for wanting to uh, direct it myself. So you love the story. You love Molly. How did you feel about poker at the time? Did you love poker? No, um, uh, I don't <laughs> dislike poker uh, uh, at all. And and uh, I'm not good at it. You guys could clean me out uh, uh, in a second. In fact, uh, the extras who would play in the games were I, I wanted pros um, uh, because uh you guys, the way you handle cards, the way you handle chips, the way you handle yourself at the table, it's just different. It comes from years and years of uh, of doing it. And uh, those pros, anytime like an actor sat down at the table, whether it was Michael Sarah or Jeremy Strong, um, uh, everybody always wanted to play the pros. And <laughs> it never went well. <laughs> No, it doesn't. Uh, but uh, uh, poker for me, listen, it's not a great spectator sport. Um, and uh, there, there, there isn't a moment in the story, really, where a hand of poker affects Molly that much. Yeah, uh, uh, She talks about it. She finds the people interesting. 
the people get themselves into trouble and that kind of is is trouble for her um uh but there was only gonna be i think there are only two scenes uh where we play a hand of cards from beginning to the end um and uh i knew going in that i was going to do it the way basically espn uh, uh does it by showing you the whole cards on the screen but obviously so even though there is little poker in the movie which is a positive thing by the way poker is still very much at the core of it and i guess there's that pressure on you as a filmmaker for it to be authentic for it to be technically accurate so what work had to go into it for that to happen i'm assuming there were consultants working on the movie there were um uh, in in various poker capacities for instance while i was writing the script uh i i needed the poker to be authentic i needed someone to sort of sign off uh, on it and say, yeah, you got that right. I also needed help uh, like constructing the scene where Harlan Eustace, who's played by Bill Camp, uh, loses to a guy he doesn't know, to Bad Brad, who he doesn't know is bad. Um, and uh, before that, loses a hand to uh, some kind of distant French royalty. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I needed help with that. Uh, uh, and so uh, there was a terrific poker player who helped me uh, with those scenes. And then on the set, uh, we had, uh, you know, experts, who, again, who could make sure, even if it was in the background, that it was going to be right, because knew you guys were going to land on us uh, uh, if we got oh, yeah. anything wrong. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, of course, decks, uh, uh, the prop people need help needed help stacking the decks so that, um, you know, every time on every take that it was dealt, the same cards were coming out. So I recently and the cards did that, that. We needed to come out were coming in. I recently did that job on another poker movie, and it was the most scared I've ever been in my entire life. Stopping Paul Schrader was directing it, being like, "Hey guys, we have to shoot that again." Were there any awkward moments where your poker consultant wanted to redo something, and you were like, "I, I don't really care. This is not consequential to the movie." Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, there were. Um, um, it, and it usually involved a, the blind um, or, or something, and, and uh, they'd want to fix something. And I'd say, I swear to God, it's, it's, it's not going to matter. Uh, and then I'd see the look in their face when I'd say it's not going to matter, and I could see that it deeply mattered to them. Uh, so, uh, uh, so we'd go ahead and make that fix. Well, you pass. It passes as far as we're concerned. Not that you give a shit. No, um, I do. I deeply give a shit. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm glad to hear that. Excellent. I, I guess my last question about Molly's game is: Do you consider it to be a poker movie? Hey, you know, when I'd be talking to people about the movie, when I, when I was out there pitching uh, uh, the movie at studios, uh, one of the first things I'd say is, "This isn't a poker movie." Um, that said, uh, uh, listen. Obviously, there's poker in it. Poker is a big part of it. Uh, and if you want to call it a poker movie, that's okay with me. Uh, but I, I think it's about her. And, um, she, you know, it's, it's, it's not like Rounders, uh, uh, where the two leads uh, in the film are poker players. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, the, the, the heroine in this story is not a poker player. Uh, I, I don't believe Molly has ever played a hand of poker uh, in her life. Wow. We tried to get Molly to come to a poker game once. She wasn't having it. Um, 
<laughs> I was actually going to ask you guys if you if you wanted Molly to join us um, uh, on this podcast because she's kind of fun uh, in these yes. conversations. And I can see from your face that I made a mistake by not asking her. Oh, to do yeah, yes, of course. She's really hard to get. I've tried multiple times to get her to do stuff. Um, if you want to hook I'll, us I'll up later, I'm all about it. If you it. invite me to do this again, it'll be with Molly. I promise. Oh, okay. Well. That, that'll happen for sure. Um, the reason we got you is because a friend of mine invited his friend, Aaron Sorkin. His name is Joshua Molina. And he said that you guys played some poker while you were prepping a, f- a few good men. Yeah, even before we were prepping a few good men. That's how I met Josh. Um, I was at a poker game at my apartment. I had gone to high school with his cousin. His cousin and I were very good friends. And I had been hearing about my cousin, Josh Molina, my cousin, Josh Molina. Uh, so I invited him to a poker game uh, at my apartment. Uh, he took all our money. Um, uh, and I was uh, in the middle of casting the play A Few Good Men uh, 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 on Broadway. Uh, and we needed understudies who could cover three, four uh, uh, parts, who could play young Marines. Josh was a new actor to New York. I said, come on in uh, an audition. And he got the job. Um, then once we were up and running on Broadway, there was a poker game on Wednesdays and Saturdays between shows, between the matinee, uh, and the evening performance. Um, and there was in my apartment, there was a poker table. Uh, th- there was a game that no one ever seemed to cash out of, uh, uh, you know? <laughs> um, uh, people would get up and leave and come back a few hours later, uh, and just keep playing. And, um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure anyone ever cashed out of that game. I just know that Josh won. He continues to win to this day. But I, I've uh, lost so he, much is, money is, to tell him. Tell me something. In, in, in your circles, Josh is considered a good player? Yes. Well, I mean, look, in because my, in my circle, circle, he's considered a very good player. Yes. In my circle, as in like the overlap between professional players and Hollywood people, Josh is a pretty good player. In the other side of that Venn diagram of pro players, no, he is not. Okay, but in, in but the overlap, if, yes. So, Josh versus Toby McGuire. I think Toby would probably own Josh. Toby owns Josh. Okay. Yeah, I think no when it, when Josh, it, when it comes to actors, I think Toby McGuire is generally regarded as kind of like number one. But the interesting thing is, in our world, in the poker community, I'd say that Josh is better known for his work as one of the execs on Celebrity Poker Showdown than he is as an actor for his roles in shows like Sports Night and West Wing. He's probably better known as the guy behind that TV series. Uh, That's really interesting. I know that he was one of the first people uh, uh, to put celebrities in poker together and to point a TV camera at it. You know, ESPN had been uh, broadcasting the World Series of Poker for a while. Um, And uh, yeah, I remember uh, when Josh got that show going. Yeah. Um, well, if we're going to move on to Josh, it makes sense to move on to the West Wing. And I know, Aaron, that you've talked a lot about this show recently because of the whole reunion in the run-up to the election. But I just have to fanboy hard on this. It is my favorite TV drama of all time. In in honor of you being here, I even wore my, my Bartlett Hoynes 98 t-shirt. <laughs> right. I, I appreciate it's knockoff merchandise and you don't get any of the revenue, but I thought you'd appreciate... <laughs> no, I, I like seeing it anyway. That's terrific. Thank you. The gesture. I mean, I guess... My first question would be, like, for, for, for someone like me, a Brit, did you, did you ever think that a show that was about American politics would translate to the other side of the Atlantic, that it would be an international hit? 
First of all, I didn't think that a show that was about American politics would work on this side uh, of the Atlantic. <laughs> Nobody else did uh, uh, either. When I was writing the first episode of The West Wing, I never imagined there would be a second episode uh, of The West Wing. Shows about politics in Washington historically just have not worked uh, on television. Uh, this one did. The fact that it works in the UK um, makes me feel great. Uh, it, it, it makes me feel great. And I know, you know, when I've been over there, people have told me we watch the show and, uh, uh, and that really makes me feel wonderful. Um, listen, everybody over here, uh, is enthralled with the crown. Um, uh, we cannot get enough of the, uh, of the crown and, and that's your West Wing. <laughs> I guess in a way it kind of is. It um, is. The other thing I'm interested in, though, I mean, when I look at the show and of how it was of its time and how successful it was in that era, how different do you think the show would have been? How it would have turned out? How successful it would have been had Gore won the 2000 election? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I like to think that the uh, I'm going to tell you why I'm wrong in a moment. I, I liked to think, I used to think, before September 11th, 2001, I thought that nothing in the outside world could really affect what was going on uh, on our show. That really what the show was at its heart, it was a workplace drama. And uh, in the U.S., our leaders generally in popular culture have been portrayed either as Machiavellian or as complete dolts, uh, one or the other. Uh, and I was doing a show where uh, the people who worked there were as competent and as heroic as the cops on a police drama, the doctors and nurses on a hospital drama, the lawyers, uh, uh, you know, in a legal uh, drama. Uh, and that that would hold up no matter what was going on in the real world. And the real world changed dramatically uh, on 9-11 in this country at any rate. Um, and suddenly I saw that, in fact, we were now the only show that was going to be affected by what was going on in the outside world. That other popular shows that were on at the time, like Friends and ER and Law and Order, and, uh, Will and Grace, they were going to be fine. Uh, uh, that once we let a couple of months go by, a kind of mourning period, it was going to be nice to laugh again and have these familiar things back. But the problem with the West Wing uh, was going to be that it was going to seem like if Josh and Donna were, you know, uh, 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 whipping down the hallways and flirting with each other, it was going to seem like everybody in the world has been affected by what happened on 9-11 except these people who now work in a White House. It used to be a parallel universe, but now it seems like it's from outer space. Uh, they just haven't been affected. And so because of that, um, I did this thing at the beginning of the third season. Uh, uh, which which was starting right after 9-11 happened, where I called off the season premiere and I wrote uh, a new episode that had nothing to do with the timeline uh, of our show called Isaac and Ishmael um, as a way of kind of the show bowing its head um, uh, and understanding that it's its storyline now, its timeline was inappropriate. And we're going to get back to it next week. But right now, what we're going to do is bleed a little bit for you. Yeah. Um, uh, because that's all we can think of to do. 
Yeah. That was the first episode I ever saw, actually. It was a great introduction because it, it, that, it was what a weird introduction the to the show because it's nothing like <clears throat> the show. But luckily, I didn't have to um, be caught up on anything, and I got a feel for how cool it was and how, how the writing went. It was something they showed us in school, actually. I was in college at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they were like, this is important television that needs to be watched. Um, well, that's nice to hear. I have a question. You said earlier it made you feel good that uh, it, it it plays well in other countries. And as far as feeling good is concerned, and anything I've ever seen of yours, from the West Wing to Molly's Game to Chicago 7, there's like a fuck yeah moment where I'm like, oh, fuck yeah, or I'm choked up. And what I want to know is, what do you think of your own cooking? Like, do you write that moment and go, fuck yeah, and ch- get yourself choked up a little? Do you sit in the edit bay and tear up the way the rest of us do? Does it affect you? Uh, I realize that um, the the humble answer would probably be no, that it, it, it doesn't affect me. It does. Um, awesome. When I, when I write it, um, uh, and I've got it, I... I am feeling the emotion that I hope the audience is going to feel uh, uh, when they see it. Um, and uh, then that first time that I see it with an audience, uh, I'm trying hard uh, to watch it through their eyes, uh, somebody seeing it for the first time. And so I get emotional, you know, at, at those moments where where the strings uh, rise. And then I tend to leave it alone. Uh, forever. Uh, I, um, for instance, we did uh, recently. The, the the West Wing got to get back together. Did the benefit for when we all vote. Yeah. Um, and so we restaged Hartsfield's Landing uh, as a play and shot it. Tommy shot it as you know in this Playhouse ninety style, uh, and we did it on HBO Max. I hadn't seen Hartsfield's Landing since it aired. Uh, and I'm always scared to go back and watch uh, uh, the, the show or a movie that I've written for fear that it won't live up to my memory of what it was. And when I went back to watch Hartsfield's Landing after, I guess, 15 years um, uh, since it had been on the air, I was so happy to feel myself get emotional again. Um, uh, and, and it's nice because now at my age, I kind of, I used to be able to, I could, perform word for word any episode uh, of the show from beginning to end. I just knew the whole thing because I'd written it. Um, and now I'm at the age where I've started to forget parts of it. And so when I see something that I didn't remember that that we did, I get very excited. Well, one follow-up question on that, which has actually come from one of our regular listeners, uh, James Martin, who is actually our West Wing superfan when we had a quiz about the show on the podcast. Wow. Uh, he says, after the Hartsfield's Landing special, do you have any ideas for a West Wing revival? If so, will there be a place for Will Bailey? I guess James feels sorry that Josh got left out of Hartsfield's Landing. Follow-up question from, jo- from, from listener Josh Molina says, Aaron, do you have anything for me? <laughs> Listen, I was... <laughs> Uh, I was really sorry that we couldn't use Josh uh, in, in the special. Really sorry. Um, for one thing, he, he had been part of the energy behind, you know, there's a lot going on in the world. Shouldn't we really uh, uh, do something? Uh, and I love working with Josh and uh, what Josh and Rishi did with uh, uh, the West Wing Weekly, I think is incredible. Absolutely. I, I, I owe them a lot uh, for that. But the Hartsfield's Landing episode was right because it ends up being kind of an ode uh, uh, to voting. 
Um, and so the answer to your question, to Josh's question, is uh, I would cast him in anything uh, uh, that I read. <laughs> but I guess the the first part of the question is that it for the West Wing? Now, are you drawing oh. a line under it, or does it ever come back in some form? Uh, uh, listen, there. If, if I get what I'm waiting for is an idea. Yeah, <laughs> if I, I'd, I'd love to return to it. Uh, if I get an idea, uh, I will. I just don't have one. Well, I I'm sure that, hard to believe. that idea isn't far off. Uh, let's get things right up to speed and your most recent project now streaming on Netflix, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Awesome film. And Thanks. something that I believe is was in the works for some time. Right? This is a screenplay you wrote more than a decade ago. 14 years. Uh, uh, and uh, I've been incredibly lucky. I, I uh, Until Chicago 7, or except for Chicago 7, um, uh, I haven't had any of these uh, development hell uh, uh, movies. Um, uh, Chicago Seventh is my ninth. Chicago Seven is my ninth film, uh, and with eight of them, it's gone right from script to making it. Uh, not so uh, uh, with Chicago Seven, which Steven Spielberg asked me to write 14 years ago in 2006, and I remember the last thing he said before I, I left his office. Uh, was it would be great if this film could come out before the election. He was talking ah. about 2008. Um, well, it came out before the election, just not the election he was talking about. Yeah. It came out before the right election. Um, and the reason why it took so long uh, to make, for the most part, it was the riots. The riots were budget busters. Uh, uh, there are two riot, riot sequences in the film. A film has to fit into a budget that the, that is proportional with what the studio thinks the appetite for the film is going to be. Uh, in other words, we, we, there wasn't a lot of elbow room uh, budget-wise. Uh, I kept writing the movie and writing the movie, and it went from director to director to director. Uh, and finally, with the election of Trump, uh, Stephen said to me, uh, the time to make this movie is now. Uh, and by then I had made, he had seen Molly's game and was sufficiently pleased with it that he thought I should direct Chicago 7. But Chicago 7, like Molly's game, I did not know that I was going to be directing it uh, when I was writing it. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know about you, Joe, but whenever I watch a film that's based on a true story, especially if it's a story that I don't know that well, after watching the film, I'll just be reading everything I can find about it. And I'm always interested, you know, what was real? What was poetic license? What did the filmmakers exaggerate? And spoiler alert, guys, because I'm going to talk about something that happens in the movie. You actually downplayed something really significant because there's right. the moment when Bobby Seal is bound and gagged in the courtroom. You have it happen for like an hour. It happened for several days. That's right. Um, uh, you know, people have asked me, did that really happen to Bobby Seale? We can be a little bit coy for your listeners who haven't seen the, the film yet. People have said, did that really happen to Bobby Seale? And the answer is, it happened worse to Bobby Seale. Yeah. Uh, you're right. It was days that he was sitting in the courtroom. Um, well, I won't describe in, in what manner. Uh, and uh, I... Uh, I compressed time as I do uh, uh, with a lot of things um, and, and had it all wrap up quickly. Yeah. I feel like the compression of time worked really well in this when you finally reveal how long the trial is going on for and everyone's mind is blown. Like it was almost as long as your development process. That's right. <laughs> trial lasted almost six months. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to make sure that it felt like that. Uh, so that's why I would throw up on the screen once in a while, trial day 63, trial day 101. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so that we understood, 
And I would remind the cast every morning before we started shooting. Okay, we've been here for 58 days now uh, uh, in this room with just this ridiculousness and this horrible judge. Yeah. So do you have to do anything to to make that movie feel so appropriate for what's going on now? Or is it just that history is constantly repeating itself? It's that we in this, we are, we're on a 14 year collision course with history, uh, with actual events. I did not, uh, alter anything to mirror events. Events simply changed to mirror the script. Yeah. That's wild. We thought that the film was plenty relevant last winter. Uh, uh, when we were making it. Uh, uh, when we were making it, we thought it was relevant because uh, Donald Trump was at rallies getting nostalgic about the good old days when they dragged that protester out of here on a stretcher and I'd like to punch that guy right in the mouth and let's beat the crap out of him. We didn't imagine uh, that, I mean, it was in, we, we wrapped in February and I think that it was in May that George Floyd uh, uh, was shot and killed Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, and suddenly protests in the streets and the protesters are being met by billy clubs and tear gas again, and protest is being demonized. Uh, so like I said, it, it's we, we kind of crashed into history. I mean, it feels very relevant for this moment in time. You referenced the cast there, Aaron, and it's very difficult to highlight individuals when you've got a cast like that. But I'm going to be unfair and I'm going to highlight one individual. And he's someone you've mentioned already, and that's Jeremy Strong, who you also cast in Molly's Game, who is just phenomenal. And anyone who watches Succession on HBO will testify because he's at the center of that show as well. And again, in reading about the movie, did his method acting extend to asking to be tear gassed? Yes. Yes, oh, he did, goodness. and and I, and I want to be clear that uh, we did it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I uh, uh, I would not agree to spray one of the actors with poison gas. Um, <laughs> I've attempted in the past, uh, uh, but I, I wouldn't agree to do that. Um, the, uh, the answer is uh, first of all, uh, let's talk about Jeremy uh, for a second. Uh, I saw him, the first time I saw him was in The Big Short, uh, right? He's fantastic in The Big Short. Yes. Um, uh, and I think, okay, well, this, here's an actor I've never seen before. Um, and he can play a kind of hard scrabble, uh, a gritty guy. Uh, and that's what I cast him as uh, uh, in Molly's Game. Uh, and I got to know him a little bit uh, in Molly's Game. He's a terribly smart guy. His devotion uh, uh, to acting is complete and he's got a bigger range. Uh, uh, when I saw him on his game, he's got a bigger range than I thought. Then I saw him on Succession and I thought he was playing the opposite of what he was doing in the big short uh, and, and Molly's game. This is not a hard scrap guy uh, uh, at all, but his performance the person I hear Jeremy compared to the most uh, among people who work in Hollywood, casting directors, that kind of thing, uh, is Dustin Hoffman. Uh, and that succession is Jeremy's graduate. Right. Uh, and uh, because what you're saying about Jeremy, what I'm saying about Jeremy, everybody is saying yeah. uh, about Jeremy. Uh, he's an actor. We, we, we can't believe our eyes. Uh, he's sensational. He was so much fun to work with uh, on Chicago 7. Yes, he's completely immersive. Um, he 
For instance, in the season one finale of Succession, I should be talking about Chicago 7, but we're talking about Jeremy. Um, uh, in the season one finale, there's a spoiler here for anybody who hasn't seen uh, the season one finale of Succession. I'll try to be careful. In, in, in the scene after the lake, the car has gone into the lake. Yes. Right? He, he's got to walk back from the lake to the hotel in the pouring rain after he's been underwater uh, in the lake. Now, most of the time on any other movie or TV set, in between takes, the actor would be surrounded by people with blow dryers. There'd be blankets. There'd be the wet clothes. Come off, dry clothes. Uh, uh, come on. You've got to keep this actor alive all night. Jeremy insisted on the opposite, um, that he had to remain wet the whole time, that they kept pouring cold water uh, on him uh, on a cold night. So Chicago 7, before any shot uh, in either of the two riot sequences, he's uh, involved with both. Uh, He made friends with a couple of the off-duty Chicago police officers who were playing Chicago police officers. And he would have them beat him up. Um, he'd have them lift him up in the air, throw him down on the ground. He'd say, really hurt me. Don't to really punch me. Um, so uh, it's like that. And you can't argue with the result. No. Aaron, you've been so awesome with your time, and we don't want to keep you any it's, longer it's than we said we would. It's been a pleasure. Listen, I, one of these days... I would really love to, because I'm, what I'm curious about now after Molly's game, yeah, I mean, he asked me about poker. Um, and uh, w- what I learned from Molly's game uh, with 100% certainty is that poker is not a game of luck, okay? It's a game of skill. Um, and what I'd like to do is just witness that skill in person. I'll bring money with me that I know I'm not going home with, and I'd love to play with you guys. Well, we, we, can, we can arrange that. Josh hits me up literally every day to play poker. We'll get okay. in the game. <laughs> we should definitely make that happen. Thank you so much, Aaron, for your time. Really appreciate it. Take care. Really appreciate it. So Thank long. you. Bye-bye. I'm so glad I was right. That was definitely a career highlight. But I knew, Joe, I knew going in that we would not have enough time to talk about everything. No. Didn't get the chance to move on to Sports Night or the social network. I wanted to tell him the only reason I ever discovered Sports Night, not as well known on this side of the water as it was in America, and certainly not as big in the UK as West Wing, Newsom, or even Studio 60. I interviewed William H. Macy when the movie Magnolia came out, and he told me that it was his favorite TV show. So I figure, well, if you get a recommendation from William H. Macy, you've got to watch it, right? And it is an absolute delight. And The Social Network... That contains one of the best lines in any movie ever, and it's a line that I quote endlessly. The internet is not written in pencil, it's written in ink. I mean, I can attest to that because I'm still blocked by Phil Hellmuth. (laughs) I'm starting to think the only reason we had Phil on this podcast (laughs) was so you could get unblocked, and you're going to feel that this entire show has been a fail because you haven't achieved that objective. Look, I... It is one of the reasons, I'm not going to lie, but the whole, you know, Aaron Sorkin thing that just happened. Yeah. First of all, am I the only one that was at least a little bit attracted to him? He is a (laughs) handsome, intelligent, charming guy. And the fact that I made Aaron Sorkin laugh, no one can ever take that away from me. Not even Josh Molina, if he beats me the next hundred times we play heads up. Yeah. And I guess we have to thank Josh for setting that up, right? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Josh Molina. 
for uh, multiple times setting me up with some of the best days of my life. Okay, well, we can thank him personally because Mr. Molina is this week's super fan. Hi, Josh. Hey. I would typically be like, it's been so long since we've talked to you, but it's only been so long since I've talked to you on this podcast. It's been two years. You believe that? Hard to believe. Congratulations, guys. Oh, thank you. Thank you. This well, is a, This is a momentous moment. Uh, it's amazing what you can accomplish when ratings don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, if anyone should be congratulating anyone on a podcast, it's me to you, Josh, because since we last spoke two years ago, two things have happened. First, I have rewatched the entire West Wing for the fourth time, watching it for the first time with my daughter, who thoroughly enjoyed it and wants to know when Josh Molina is going to come to our house for dinner. I've had to explain that there are some things logistically that don't make that possible. Um, that can be arranged someday. <laughs> I'm sure, one day, one day. But of course, I did get to experience rewatching it alongside listening to the West Wing Weekly, which is such a phenomenal show. You guys did an awesome job on that. And it's the perfect experience to watch an episode and then listen to the breakdown and listen to your interviews afterwards. I can't recommend it highly enough. I appreciate that. Still, it should be noted, we didn't make it to 200 episodes. Well, had the West Wing made it to 200, <laughs> you would have oh, made yeah. it to 200. I blame that largely on the West Wing yes, itself. Yes, yes. And, and look, I've already done this bit for Aaron. I'll do it for you as well. In honor of your appearance today, I am wearing my Bartlett Hoynes 98 t-shirt. Very nice. Very nice. I'm sure it's already been pitched to Josh before, but any um, chance of doing the West Wing Weekly weekly uh, where you go over episodes of the West Wing Weekly? If you go to SoundCloud, you will find that somebody did that very amusingly. (laughs) It's only a single episode. They didn't do the entire series, but it's pretty funny. Uh, Also, I'm glad that your daughter enjoys the show because my own daughter, ever since the show was originally on, so probably... I don't know, 18 years ago, I once put an episode of it on and within 17 seconds, she said, can we watch something that daddy's not in? Oh, <laughs> and we haven't watched the West Wing here since. Oh. I only allow shows that I'm on to play in this house. If I ever have kids, they're uh, really going to uh, hate it. Yeah, my, my kids, not at all into my work. Um, now, not big fans. Even though you haven't <laughs> been physically part of the podcast for the last two years, you get talked about a lot, Mr. Molina. <laughs> Because uh, yeah, I understand. Yes, because of this home game, and and at this point, I guess the prosecution will call its first witness, uh, Maria Ho. Welcome back. Hi, guys. Hi, Hi Maria. Maria. So, Maria, you are an eyewitness. Joe does nothing but bitch and whine about a how badly he runs at poker, which is so boring to listen to, but also claims that it has become impossible for him to win a hand of poker against Joshua Molina. Yeah, I think the thing is, is I don't feel like he runs that badly against Josh, but Joe makes such a big deal every time it happens that it just sticks in people's minds. So I think the perception is not the reality. And, you know, I don't want to show receipts, but I do have some text messages from Joe talking about how Josh runs over him and runs like God against him and another couple choice words that I don't want to mention, but it's so there, there's two separate things here. There's our home game in which we played together in which I run terribly. Uh, it, but that doesn't matter who I'm playing against. Maria su- has sucked out of me on m- multiple occasions, getting in bad. Josh, to be fair, has done it the least, but that's because he has so many other victims 
in our home game who fall prey to Josh. Josh and I play heads up uh, multiple times a week. And if I could, do you remember, Josh, remember when you were on the show last time and I read you a transcript of my roommate watching Scandal? Yes. Well, here's a transcript of Josh's text messages to me. Oh, no. October 18th, do it, poker. I didn't reply. October 20th, do it, poker. Remember? Dude, do. October, didn't reply. October 22nd, do it, poker. October 23rd, come on for your podcast. You're due, one. October 30th, 7.58 a.m., do it. 10.15 a.m., do. 10.20 a.m., it. This is my life. So I, I, I have to play him. To, to get him to leave me alone. And then he annihilates me. And look, I'm not saying he plays bad. He just, whatever, he gets it in good, he wins. He gets it in bad, he wins. He flips, he wins. It is insane uh, how many games we, I, we've played and how many he's won. Can I speak to that? First, let me speak to the text message thread, which is no doubt 100% accurate. There, that is in the great tradition of what my father used to uh, do as a kid. He called it a haunt. And having, having taught me about it when I was a little kid, I then did it to him constantly. So if there's anything I wanted out of him, um, I would haunt him like that. It just, it just a relentless attack. For instance, when, when the first computer came out, the Apple whatever, I can't remember what the first thing was, but I desperately wanted it. And he said, look, well, get me a, a manual of whatever, the information manual. And on every single page, I wrote basically, do it, buy it, get it, computer. <laughs> so I've been doing this kind of thing for well, close it to works. 50 years with great success in terms of just forcing people to at least uh, consider doing what I want. Well, the interesting thing, and Maria, you might not find this easy to believe, but Joe Stapleton is the biggest whiner on this show. And we had Phil Helmuth for 33 minutes. <laughs> that is, that says something. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know a lot about how Joe reacts to losing before this home game, but I would say that he needs a lot of work on the mental game. Well, we have something lined up, which is a bit of a scientific experiment without the science. And the idea <laughs> is to see just how badly Joe really runs and whether there is something enigmatic about Joshua Molina, which means he cannot lose at poker against Joe. Uh, we have a flipperment. It is basically a heads-up sit-and-go with unlimited rebuys, all play money, and actually the chips don't count. What matters is who wins the most number of flips. Now, interestingly, we ran this as a test last week. We found that five minutes wasn't quite long enough. Ten minutes was too much. So we settled on seven because there is an old adage in poker started by the Germans that the seven, it is always coming, especially when you are playing the flipping games. So that is what we're going to do. And just to be clear, yes, you can fold. But if you fold, that's an automatic loss. That's one in your zero column. You must be all in every hand and you can rebuy if you go broke. And I guess, guys, because you're going to be all in every hand, do tell us what you're holding before the chips go in, before the cards go on their backs. Because, Maria, you and I are going to have to try and call the action here. I tell you what, you've got the hard job. You're going to have to try and follow what's going on. I am going to keep scores. Look at this. This this is this is technology, ladies oh and gentlemen. There's that, a paper? column for Josh and a column for Joe. And uh, we are ready to go. I like the structure. I like the structure. Very One good. Very question. Nice design tournament. 
Are we allowed to use solvers? No. <laughs> yeah, I have been. Uh, I've been consulting a lot of charts in, in preparation. <laughs> Good luck. Just always shove charts. Okay, here we go. Sure. Okay, I've got seven deuce. I think we're immediately going to show whether or not I, I can uh, outplay you. Are you slow rolling me already? No, he did start with seven deuce. I mean, so far, ten highs in the lead. Oh, and a pair of threes. There we go, Joe. Well, I think we've How resolved who's it? luckier. End game. Okay, round two. King nine, that's a good head-to-head -head hand. Six, four. Okay. Loving the pair of kings for Josh right now. We have a chance to even up the score, and we do. It is one it. all. This is a classic one. barn burner. I like uh, my ace eight off. That's not bad head to head. Okay, so far so good from Melina. Started okay. with the best hand, still the best hand by the river. Joe, you, to be fair, you didn't have the best starting. All yet, right, so. I'll rebuy. <laughs> my confidence is really. <laughs> <clears throat> Joe, don't forget to tell us what you have before you start sorry, moving I've, chips over. I have Jack 3, Nine sir. Seven. There's a podcast. Oh, it's a real barn burner now. Okay. We're, we're a dead I feel like heat. so far, the best hand going in has yeah. been the best hand that coming out. So King 10 off. King I'm in. Six, I like it head to head. Oh, oh, oh open ended straight draw oh, for Joe. Oh, for both oh, players. Open ended straight draw for Melina, but both miss. And oh, wait, no. Yeah. Joe does make the straight on the end. That was the first suck out. That's right. I have the score. Okay, seven, okay, my friend. Three, seven, two, baby. right now. Let's okay, see if we who get. Who doesn't love? Yeah. Tight. That's what I'm using. Okay. Tight game Look again. Look at this. Ten, Ten seven. Doy, I got the uh, Doy Bronson. This will be the real test. The domination situation. This is uh, the river, where please. we chop it. Okay, so your kicker is going to play, it looks like. And I feel like what you've been saying isn't holding true right now. I think you're not running that bad against Josh. And five. I meant to mention it. We got a long way to Good go. Club. Clean deuce. Drawing dead. What, what well, is happening? You don't want uh, another one there, Joe? Joe, can we, um, <laughs> Joe, stop acting so leader, Joe Stapleton. Can we add some off. stakes into Ten this? 10 five now? off, my friend. Five oh, times suited. Okay, Joe, if, all right, I was going to say, if Joe hits a three here, I think that we just need to yeah. shut down the whole conversation. Right? King five, see this. Josh, oh, I have no shot here. Oh, come on. Joe, you got two air now? Oh. Oh, boy. Well, it's guys. It's not even fair, Joe. I actually feel like I'm being outplayed. <laughs> <laughs> but queen eight, I, uh, I ship this. King nine of diamonds. Oh, dear. Joe in the dominating position still. Oh, turn an eight, turn to river two pair. Okay, Molina does. It must be hard to call this. You don't have a lot of time. <laughs> you don't have a lot of time. Eight three off. This would be a lucky hit. Remember, guys, take your time. Don't snap calls, snap shots. Yeah, you're right. Take yeah, your time. I'm start. <laughs> Another win. Rebuys. I feel like I can turn this around still. There's time. Yeah, yeah stay, uh, stay. Just ace eight suited. I'm feeling pretty good about that. Five trays suited. And, well, since you told me, I guess then I'll shut. And just so you know, Joe's up seven five. It is closer what? than you might think. And look at this. <laughs> He's got two pair now. Uh, okay, boy. Joe is now up eight five, and the gap is starting to widen. 
Could you, a little check mark when the uh, the losing hand wins. You might want to track that because I do feel luck wise I'm getting uh, uh, smacked. Yeah. I have five. What do you got? I got Jack Dude. Five high. Oh, oh dear. of course you flop a pair of fives. Going dead. No. Okay, yes. so that's now nine five to Joe Stapleton. Is it too late to make this for money? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, think how much more frustrating it would be if all the playing between us was for real money. Oh, now you have him <laughs> okay. dominated on the suits and you turn a pair on that you didn't even need, Joe. You've now got him at a two to one advantage, well. Joe. You're leading 10-5. I've got 8-3 well, off, my friend. Four high. If you take this one. Uh-oh. Okay. Gut shot. Gut shot, yep, for Stapes. Okay, that one did not come in, so Lena's going to win. Queen four off. I'm, I'm guessing I'm ahead. I have Helmuth's World Series of Poker Main Event Championship year. Hmm. 89. Okay. And it is. Yeah. Wow. I, I think, guess, okay, so I'm just learning a little bit about Josh's game now. Yes. Which is if you call anything pre-flop, sometimes you oh, get a spades. hand. Oh, spades. Of course, Joe again with the best hand. Had a hand double gut shot there from the river. The, yeah. I'm a double smashed. So this is getting awkward. I guess yeah, Josh could bit. surrender now. Uh, no, I play on. You watch me. My mental game is strong. Queen seven off, I shove. Oh, dear. Ace Jack. How do you wake up Talk with that. Ace Jack here? I mean, <laughs> it's really unfair. I'm getting destroyed. I was going to ask my dad to watch this, but now I'm too embarrassed. <laughs> this is doing wonders for my self-esteem. This isn't even going oh on the God, show. Look at that flop. Trip queens for Stapes. <laughs> okay. I mean... The score now is 14-6. Holy moly. I'm going to rebuy. Come on. <laughs> Eight in a row. Eight in a row right now. Ace three suited. Boom. Uh-oh. Oh, oh How do you wake <laughs> up with Ace eight? And Seriously. We hit we the pair. Can you tell all of these above average starting hands and then having your hands hold up, Joe? This is bolstering my argument that I maybe maybe I'm better than Joe. <laughs> because of my luck certainly. Look at this, alright. Oh, finally. Spade me, dealer. Ah. Uh, well, I guess you can't win them all. No. This could be a late. Eight combat. five off. Not feeling great about this hand. I have got King Jack the Kojak. Nonetheless, I shot. Okay. No oh, gut shot. Care for Joe. Break from Alina. Mm. I'm starting to feel I need... bad about this. You don't ever feel bad when you're playing against me, though, do you? I never feel bad at beating anyone in any way at any time. <laughs> I will admit. Come on, Spade. I can chop this. No! Oh, God! No oh, chop! No chop! Oh, my goodness. How do you miss uh, that, Molina? You were ahead they... the whole time, in fairness. I think they programmed the seats backwards. <laughs> classic oh, here's race. A classic race. First true flip. Sevens versus ace queen. All right. Ace queen. All right. And that is ball game, ladies and gentlemen, or poker game, to be more precise. The final score, eight wins for Josh Molina. Joe Stapleton, 17 that All right. you destroyed me. is better than you a two-to-one margin of victory. And I think this is proof, positive, because this was a very big sample size. Um, <laughs> that you have been talking BS, my friend. Nah. You have been... Now, hold on a second. Th this is... It's all made up. 
You are running Here's pure. how bad I run. You get it in bad, you win. You get it in good, you win. And it's like, oh, I can't win a hand against Josh Molina. Uh, what was that? Uh, what was that? Here's how bad one. I run. I run so bad that all I needed was a good segment of this podcast proving <laughs> how bad I run, and I ran fucking good instead. That's how bad I run. I can't even have a good segment for the podcast because, of course, the one time I need to run bad, I run good. Yeah, I follow the I follow the argument. Oh, I no. want to apologize to my backers. I will make good. Um, well, the good news is, Josh, the rules of Superfan versus States prize. are very simple. Um, you probably don't need another Sports Night box set, but <laughs> hey, we're going to send you a Poker in the Ears t-shirt. And Maria, because you've been such a good sport, you can have one too. Yay! <laughs> Thank you. I will wear it proudly. Thank Excellent. you both for being part of our 200th anniversary holiday celebration special. Uh, this was fun. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. Thanks for beating me, Jim. All right, my babies, we're almost out of time for this, our 200th episode. Uh, before we get to what's coming up next week, less than one minute after we finished, three text messages from uh, Josh Molina. The first says poker. The second says do. The third says it. The man is hungry for more. He wants revenge. And something tells me normal service will resume the next time you play. I think so. Uh, speaking of next time, coming up on next week's show, too bad there's no more big names to get. And it's back to having Spraggy again next week. Just kidding. We got another superstar on the show next week we got michael sarah my babies cool so this week we had the writer director of molly's game one of the stars of the movie is going to be on next week's show that is correct michael sarah uh, started kind of like poker before molly's game grew to love the game uh, after having played that part we're gonna have him on the show hold on joe I, I need to yeah. i need to find my review of year one on twitter and frantically delete it because i don't want to upset him something tells me that he's gonna understand uh, <laughs> what's going on for super fan so next week's super fan is another michael uh michael hughes and he has picked the movie heathers from the late 1980s, the Christopher Christian Slater movie as his specialist subject. So I don't know if you've seen that before, Joe, or need to revisit it, but Patrick's working on the quiz as we speak. I saw it when I was a kid and didn't understand what a dark comedy was and was right. horrified in like the first 10 minutes and stopped watching it. Like I couldn't get through okay. it. Uh, so next week's Superfan is lined up, but we are still taking applications for 2021. If you'd like to come on the show, compete for prizes, pick the specialist subject of your dreams. Let us know on Twitter and please, please, please use the hashtag poker in the ears. Not being funny. So much gets missed in my at replies and I don't really want you to kind of fall into a well of nothingness on the internet. So tag your tweets, not just for super fan applications. We want comments, questions, and, and I guess Joe people giving us ideas of who we can have as guests on the show in the new year. Absolutely, guys. If you think there's someone that's interesting, that's even, as you know, we like to kind of get to the outskirts of poker. It doesn't have to be a poker player, someone that you find interesting, that we can find any tenuous connection to poker whatsoever. We will look into having them yeah. on the show. Hit us on all the social medias. Use that hashtag. James specifically likes to ignore his at replies. I do. Use that hashtag <laughs> if you want to get noticed. Until next time, until the 300th episode. 
For James Hardigan, I am Joe Stapleton. Smell you later. <laughs>